HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and this half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, if I were to ask you to give me a definition of Italian cuisine, I guarantee the first word out of your mouth would be pasta, or the first word in your mouth <laughs> would be pasta. And you know, by and large, you're probably not wrong, but there's such diversity, and it's kind of like nailing jello to a wall, I think. We've got someone here with us today who's going to talk to us and tell us a little more about what is Italian cuisine, if we can define Italian cuisine, and that is Fabio Paraseccoli. Fabio is Associate Professor and Coordinator of the Food Studies Program at the New School in New York City, and his research focuses on the intersections of food, media, and politics. His current work examines food and masculinity in movies and the socio-political aspects of food. Really interesting. That's another show. I want to do that <laughs> one. Um, as well as international trade and intellectual property. Uh, he's very deeply involved in the international food studies movement, and he is program advisor at Gusto Lab, a center for food and culture in Rome. He's worked for many years as the U.S. correspondent for Gambero Rosso, Italy's authoritative food and wine magazine. And among his recent publications, they are Food and Culture in Italy, The Introduction to Culinary Cultures of Europe in Europe, Bite Me, Food in Popular Culture, and um, one of the editors of the six-volume Cultural History of Food. And his most recent book, which brings him back in our studio with me today, is... Al Dente, A History of Food in Italy. Okay, Fabio. Uh, you, I forgot to mention also that you are a regular contributor. I have a blog on Huffington Post. I and, do. Yes. Well, welcome to the show. And, okay, the history of food in Italy. Come on, there are, you know, people have been writing about the history of 
Italian cuisine or food in Italy since the early Roman time. Well, of course, a lot of a lot of writings about early Roman time. But you, having grown up in Italy, as you yourself described, in a culture where food is a complex, contentious, and dynamic issue. Ooh, tell me about this book. What what did you cram into this book? There's a lot crammed in this book, but what what to you is important about this book? Yeah, there, there is a, a lot in it. Um, I wanted to uh, reflect on the food in Italy from a contemporary point of view. For me, that was very important. I, wa- I didn't want the book just to be a chronicle of how food in Italy developed over the centuries. I was not interested in that. We have plenty of timelines on that one. Yeah. So there's that information, of course, but everything is sort of geared towards the the present. That's the the situation that we have now. So when we look at food in Italy, how do we make sense of it? Where did it come from? Exactly. And not only that, why is it so important for Italians? Why is it such... Um, a relevant part in, I don't know, media and politics and daily conversations. And, you know, even when you walk on the streets in Italy, you see markets and you see restaurants and you take a walk in the countryside and you see beautiful landscapes and vineyards. And it's, it's nice just to let go and enjoy that. But as an Italian, for me, it's also very important to understand why things are the way they are now and why Italians speak and think uh, of Italian food in certain ways and why they do certain things. So that was basically my intention when I accepted to write this book. Well, if you will, excuse the pun, you have bitten off quite a bit to, to present this book. And even your question is, how do we or even should we Define Italian cuisine as a whole? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. As a matter of fact, that's why I decided to call my book A History of Food in Italy rather than A History of Italian exactly. Food. Exactly. Right. For me, that, there is a big difference. Um, there was a concept of Italy in history, but it was uh, something shared mostly by um, the elites. And it was not really part of the daily life of everybody. Um, Italy is a very new country. I mean, the, 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 the new kingdom of Italy was declared in 1861, so the same time as the U.S. Civil War. All right. I mean, people laugh when you say that, but because they've been around, but they were, but they were and, and this brings me to another point, too, about the food, they were all these little... Duchies or regions and kingdoms and duchies, and it was very fragmented. And it was particularly interested because interesting because every kingdom, every area had their own uh, language, their own traditions, their own laws. So of course, food was very very local. I mean, there were exchanges of famous products. For instance, we have uh, very clear uh, traces of the fact that. Parmigiano Reggiano uh, was already considered uh, a top product at the time, and it was consumed in in many parts of Italy. But that was just one fragment of the whole food production. Uh, Most of what was produced was also consumed locally. Uh, First of all, 
because until basically the Renaissance, I mean, between the Romans and the Renaissance, um, there were difficulties of communications, of production, you know, the, the whole uh, period of the early Middle Ages, and then, you know, lots of invasions and whatnot. But already by the Renaissance, we have some key products. And lots of uh, writers from the time actually enjoy writing about the diversity of the foods uh, in Italy. And I think that's very, uh, very important to keep in mind. That's something that uh, food experts, let's call it that, uh, had clear since, you know, the 15th century, since, since the 16th century. Italy became a, an important concept in the 19th century with the political development that eventually led to the formation of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But even, you know, in the second part of the 19th century, as a famous Italian politician said, well, we've done, we've made Italy. Now we have to make Italians. Hmm. That was not easy. And I don't think we're still quite there yet. <laughs> There is a section that would rather see part of it leave. <laughs> There's that. <Yeah. laughs> That's one of the most contentious political hey, we, issues. And we have that in our country as yes, well. Yes, so. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, overall, now, of course, after 150 years, there is uh, an identity of, of what being Italian means. And people identify themselves as Italian, but at the same way, the local... Uh, tradition, local habits are still strong, even if, you know, starting from the 1950s with the economic development, um, lots of industrial products became popular nationwide. And as a matter of fact, people preferred eating, I don't know, canned peas <laughs> rather than fresh peas, yeah. because the fresh peas reminded them, you know, of their grandparents, the countryside poverty and all that. Yeah, the, old, the old hard life. Yeah, you didn't want that, right? So you wanted to go to a supermarket, which was in itself, uh, you know, a cool place to be. Hmm. It, was, it, was a, it was a very new and recent innovation. Yes, in Italy. It, it started in the, in the late 60s, mm -hmm. much later than, than in the U.S., and the products available there were also cool, and they were advertised on TV, which was new, too. Italy uh, started uh, brought, uh, TV broadcast in 1954. So it, it was this old desire to become modern rather than becoming Italian that actually allowed the diffusion of nationwide products and very often industrial ones. Well, and, but, and a good point. I mean, that you, uh, you mentioned in the book, too, that a lot of attention, of course, and pride was put on some of these other industrial products that were popular you know, throughout the rest of Europe so that agriculture, as you mentioned, downplayed, but then to a point where it became... You know, almost dangerous, as, almost extinct. Yeah. As a matter of yeah. fact, because uh, with the economic development in the '60s, you had a massive movement of people from the countryside into the cities, and from the south to the north. So there were whole villages that were left abandoned, and many uh, productions, traditions, the know-how about certain rural um, specialties were almost forgotten. Varieties of vegetables and beans and Heirlooms, grapes, right? yes, exactly, yeah. were, were forgotten. The good thing is that this moment didn't last that much, maybe, you know, 30 years. Already by the, age of the, the end of the 1980s, uh, probably because Italians felt that they were removed enough from the 
the past, from poverty, from rural life. By then, you know, late 80s, it was the yuppie time. People started reacting to these excesses in food and whatnot. And there was a new interest in these old traditions and what, you know, people used to eat at home, mm -hmm. uh, these products that were being forgotten. Well, you know, not unlike what we see in America today, too, yes. with the locavore movement and the, the artisanal products and handmade this and that and growing your own. And I, I don't think that, I think, you know, certain trends are, you know, come with growth, yeah. you know, come with growth. But, but one thing that I thought, you mentioned... Um, uh, with the different kingdoms and the, there were lots of invasions and of course over the years Italy p in particular suffered tremendously from a lot of these invasions with war brings hardship yeah. but um, forget the you know agricultural hard times the, the war situations and invasions created many famines yes. in Italy over the years and for a country that is so obsessed with food it's interesting the obsession with the food maybe comes from the their exposure of, of the lack of food, right. Absolutely. You can see that, you know, in literature, too. You have lots of these fantasies of uh, fantastic kingdoms where there are mountains of macaroni with cheese. Exactly, yeah. cheese on top, and people can roll down uh, these mountains. Uh, the cocaine, Paese della Cucagna. Mm. And these are fantasies that you see developing in the Middle Ages, and they continue on and on and on. I mean, hunger was a common experience for many Italians way into the 1960s. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you um, write in the book, you have a wonderful section on post-war, post-World War II movies, which, of course, you know, Italians became the, the wonderful movie makers, filmmakers. And I think a lot of people, when they watch them, aren't necessarily aware, aware that these yes. were all expressions of hunger. And, and how food was so important because they didn't have any. You, and wonderful films. Wonderful. Yeah, see, you think about uh, Bicycle Thieves or Obsession. They are fantastic. You know, the movies from 1945 on, you know, those 10 years of uh, the neorealism uh, period, they're just amazing. And in a way, they do reflect the situation of post-war Italy, but it's also the choice of the filmmakers to use food to make a political point. Mm -hmm. Many of these filmmakers wanted to uh, change Italy. They wanted Italians to be aware of political issues. And food was right at the forefront of political discussions because there was no food after the war. You know, most of the food was found on the black market. It was very expensive. So for the different political parties, it was important to make sure that Italians understood that they would ensure food. Huh. So you had the Christian democracy that was more connected with the U.S. and whatnot, pointing out the fact that, you know, the communists uh, are connected with the USSR and people are starving there. So what can you expect? So you blame that on your lack of food. and you, know. yeah. you use... <laughs> it was an important um, argument. It is. Food has been used as a... Oh, yeah. You know, as, as a tool in many ways. Uh, but from this, it's interesting because from this lack of food... It actually developed a type of cuisine throughout Italy, too, the yes. cucina povera. 
cucina povera and cucina popolare. I mean, it, describe, you know, describe that a little bit for our listeners. Who might cucina povera means, you know, the, 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 the cuisine of poverty. And in a way, many of the recipes that now we really identify with um, Italian food and Mediterranean food are the outcome of the fact that people had to make do with what they had around them. Uh, first of all, people had very limited access to meat. Um, it was just for special occasions. They would make up uh, with, you know, fats most of the time, you know, pork fat. Uh, olive oil was even expensive for people that were not close to the production places. And very often farmers would make olive oil and then sell it to make money and then use you know, pork fat in their daily life. In the north, people would use butter. Um, they had more calves than in the south. But still, it was a very simple cuisine, mostly based on grains, uh, vegetables, and that was it. Right. E even if you lived near the coast, the coast it was not... Uh, this is, I mean, not, you didn't have access to fish because, again, the fishermen would fish and then sail into the cities to make money to survive. There is a fantastic movie from, uh, movie from 1948 called uh, The Earth Trembles. And it's the story of this family of fishermen on the coast of Sicily right after the war. And you could see um, the negotiations going on every day when the fishermen went back to their villages there. Uh, boats full of fish, but all the fish was bought by middlemen and then sold in the big cities while they were left with salted sardines and maybe a piece of bread. Mm -hmm. So that's been the story of Italy for, you know, many, many decades. So uh, the cuisine is very often uh, the result of this, but at the same time, we also have a very rich cuisine for holidays. Holidays were always been important. So even poor people on special occasion had recipes that um, displayed abundance or relative abundance. What for them was abundance. And, of course, the elites always ate well. Well, that, and that's not the population. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But many of those um, elite recipes now have trickled down because now everybody has access to them. So there was sort of this repository, this warehouse, a fantastic luxurious cuisine developed in big centers like Rome, Naples, you know, the big um, the cities with big courts. Mm -hmm. And that tradition was maintained all the way to the 19th century. At that point, you know, with the development of the bourgeoisie, they tried to adapt those recipes to a more daily life. And so you had different layers of cuisine that now create the, the richness of food in Italy, you know, very simple food, very excessive food. Um, well, you and to love it. Fortunate, fortunately for the world, I mean, the Italians or the those living in one of those yeah. <laughs> those kingdoms in the the great empire um, were prolific writers. So they did write things down. Yes, which, there know, are fantastic yeah. uh, cookbooks, but also philosophical reflections mm -hmm. about food. I mean, uh, Plotinus. A uh, book from the 15th century, it's a reflection of what he called honesta voluptate, which is sort of honest pleasure. Good so, health, honest Good health, pleasure. yes. And then you had the books from the maitre d' of the time, the scalco. 
And those books are fantastic because they do not only talk about recipes, but about banquets, the organizations, um, the um, what people use to make decorations, how uh, the meals would become spectacles. So you have all these books from the 15th, 16th century that are just amazing to read. And then you start having all the, the court chefs writing books. And so you have those that have more of a Neapolitan inflection those that are more influenced by the, the French cuisine in Turin and you could spend you know years just reading through the, the those books Indeed. and uh, that's part of what I wanted to do in in my book uh, offer some of that to people that maybe don't have access to Latin or old Italian or even modern Italian but you know those chefs those calcos um, were doing very interesting things. Indeed. We're going to talk more about some of those interesting things when we come back after a short break. You are listening to Onions Milk by Iggy Dean on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from A Taste of the Past. Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And I am back, and my guest today is Fabio Parasecoli. He's the (laughs) professor of food studies at the New School. And um, his new book is Al Dente, A History of Food in Italy. Mm -hmm. Remember, that's not history of Italian food, history of food in Italy. Well, we have talked um, a lot about the, uh, the great diversity of food throughout Italy. And, of course, there are, there's this, I mean... They are the polar opposites. There's the the deep south, and then there is the north. And the cuisine varies um, in those regions dramatically, as in other as the small specialties in lots of different regions. You mentioned something about some of this regionalism, and you called it campanilism. Yeah, okay. can tell us about that. Campanilismo is a word that comes from campanile which is the Italian word for the church bell tower. So basically, campanilismo is the proud, the pride, I'm sorry, in the local community of the people that were born within the range of that tower's shadow. 
So, and besides, you know, when you are in a small village, everybody can see the campanile, and above mm. all, they can hear it. So it was sort of the, the symbol of the extremely local identity. I mean, in Italy, it's really amazing how even, you know, accents and dialects and traditions and recipes vary from village to village, even 10 miles from from each other. Uh, here in the U.S., I mean, I've been here for 16 years now, you do have regional varieties, of course, but not at that micro scale. Right. And that also what offers, you know, such an amazing, an amazing variety. But pasta, of course, you have to admit, is Italian. Pasta, as we <laughs> make it, the dry pasta, yes, is Italian. But as I point out in the book, uh, probably it originated in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. then came, you know, to Italy through the Arabic invasions in the 10th century. But then Italians made it theirs. And so you have very important production centers in Naples, in Sicily, in Florence. Um, you know, there is still the myth that, you know, pasta was invented in China and then Marco Polo brought it to Italy. Uh, you know, it's cute, yeah. but, you know, by, by the time Marco Polo came back, pasta was already quite available uh, In fact, I in think one, one of my guests, um, Maureen Fant, said there was a cute story that um, Marco Polo's wife had a bowl of pasta waiting for him when he came back from his trip. <laughs> <laughs> that was a myth buster right there. <laughs> quite likely. I mean, and I do love uh, Chinese uh, wheat products and noodles and whatnot, but you can tell that they had completely different histories and origins and I mean that's what makes also you know looking at food history so so interesting yeah. because there are so many things that people just say because you don't really know why you know these sort of myths that are uh, created and reinforced over time well Italy's really great about embracing products or or um, I'm thinking particularly agriculture and, and vegetables from other countries, specifically America, the New World. I mean, they were every you know in Europe they were the tomato went across the land, but pasta existed before the tomato, yes. which people have to realize. Yes, yeah. pasta has been produced in Italy probably from the 11th century, as we know it. I mean, fresh pasta has always been produced. Mm -hmm. the, the Greeks made it, the Romans made it, but I'm talking about the dry pasta right. that can be you know, sold away and kept for, for longer periods. That's that's a little bit uh, newer More than recent, fresh pasta. Right. That yes. took a little industrial innovation there. Right? Also, the, the, the history of industrial innovation around pasta is fantastic. You can see already in the late Middle Ages, they had some sort of tools, and then they developed into full-on machinery during Renaissance and the centuries after Renaissance. I mean, the technique to make uh, dry pasta is extremely complicated. Usually, you know, you have the three phases. You have the, the dry pasta first um, in the full sun heat. So you need a dry place so that uh, the, the, the pasta dries in the exterior. Then so you, the south became very important. Exactly. Yeah. Or places in the north like Genoa that had good ventilation. Right. They were warm. So then you bring it inside in a, in a cooler place so that basically the dry part of the pasta uh, absorbs the humidity from inside and bring it outside. And then 
Try it again. You put it outside again, <laughs> not so much in full sun, but in a warmer place. So that was the you know the traditional way, but as you can imagine, it was quite long and complicated. So what uh, people have been trying to do is to substitute machines or create machines that, in a way, um, uh, provide those same faces during the production. Hmm. And if you go to Barillas, for instance, I had the, the opportunity to be into there, uh, to get into their uh, plants a couple of times. You can still see those faces, but now it, it feels like you're at NASA, you know. It's <laughs> huge machineries and yeah. amazing technology. Yeah, indeed. Um, one thing that that is was always very important to Italian cuisine. I'm mean, I'm I'm using this this yeah. generalization here um, that was not so popular in, in nearby countries were vegetables. Mm-hmm. Vegetables was always they were always a very important part of of the cuisine. No? Yes, since you know since antiquity, even at the time you know in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, where the the medical theories at the time said that maybe vegetables were not the best right. for you because they were cool and wet and whatnot. Italians stuck to their uh, vegetables, and you can see that in in the cookbooks from from the times. I mean, it was not all about meat. I think that's part of sort of the Mediterranean heritage, you know, having so many vegetables around. Um, and I think that was one of the most durable influences of Italy over other countries already in the Renaissance. You know, think of France in the 16th century. Okay. Um, Italians still like their vegetables. I, I'm not a vegetarian, for instance, but then on a daily basis, very often I just eat vegetables or you know, or grains or, or or stuff like that. Of course, you know, now people have access to meat and dairy and eggs and it's different. Right. But the, when you mentioned grains, uh, rice and and corn became um, very, important. very important in Italy. Yes, right. yes. Uh, rice was introduced by the uh, Muslims in Sicily back in the 10th century. But then when they were... Uh, chased out of the island, uh, people lost the technology necessary to grow it. And so uh, rice almost disappeared. And then it was reintroduced by the Spaniards in the north after the 14th century. And there, you know, you have more humid uh, weather, more water. And over time, Italy developed fantastic varieties. I mean, if you want to make a good risotto, you need to have a good variety of risotto mm-hmm. rice. You cannot make it just with anything because you don't have the same uh, gluten, the same starches. It's it's different. And corn was embraced, you know, with a vengeance in the 15th century, 16th century, because it grew easily, also in very hard terrains. It had huge yields. And people sort of knew what to do with it because it was a grain. So they they sort of treated it as other grains. They uh, ground it and made polentas with it, you know, grits, basically. Mm-hmm. Or um, they could make breads. And the problem was that many people didn't know that you needed, you know, the process called the nixtamalization. You know, like you have Mexican to... Mexican that started in... in uh, exactly. Mexican. So you, people didn't know that had to soak them That's in lye or all their alkali. Right. 
And so pellagra became a huge problem, especially in northern Italy, until the, the early 20th century. They were just eating the, the corn, the yep. cornmeal, and, and not processing, not, exactly. no nishtimalization, right? Yeah. Yep, not getting the, the <laughs> ingredients. Well, you mentioned um, the varieties, rice in particular, you mentioned the varieties. And then earlier you had mentioned um, Parmesan, which brings me to um, a recent, uh, I guess, protective issues, you know, governmental yes. protective issues. And these are the the certifications, if you will, or the labeling, the PDO, the PGI, the TSG. Um, tell us, what, what is PDO? And what, explain what each of these things are. Well, this legislation started in the EU in 1992. But it's based on, you know, the French idea of the wine crews and and all that so it started the, the idea started in in the 19th century the system as it is now it's a way to connect uh, f- uh, products with specific places and their names well how does it differ from doc i mean they had doc forever DOC is for wine for, so it's only yeah, wine only wine uh-huh. now in italy we have doc and docg mm-hmm. which is uh denomination of origin uh, controlled and guaranteed, so it, it's a little stricter. But then they apply the same principle to foods. So you have the PDOs, the protected denomination of origins, which are uh, the products that have the strict, the closest connection with the place. And every phase of production has to be uh, carried out in that specific place. So if you get prosciutto di Parma, you it, yes. they can't call it prosciutto di Parma unless it really and truly is. Mm-hmm. Made in Parma, even sliced and packaged in Parma. Hmm. And then you have the, the PGI, the Protected Geographical Indication, that is a, not as strict, but still the fame and the characteristics of the products need to be connected with specific places. And then the. So it's a tra- like that's a tradition yes. or heritage. But, but still, food. the food needs to be. At, at least partly made there. Mm-hmm. The third category, the TSGs, the traditional specialty guarantee, it's all about tradition. Uh-huh. It really doesn't matter where it's made or where the ingredients come from. And that's why, for instance, both mozzarella and Neapolitan pizza fall under that third category. It can be made anywhere as long as it's in that style yes. of, of making it. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's a way of protecting their product and I was at a, a conference not long ago um, more about Malaysian food uh, mm-hmm. or Indonesian food but the one of the um, ministers from the um, Italian Trade Commission was there and she was really very concerned that people were you know kind of co-opting a lot yeah. of Italian products, and they were not paying attention to these designations. There are and, huge international trade negotiations yeah. behind these issues. I mean, there are countries like, for instance, the U.S. that base their systems on trademarks, collective or certified trademarks, and other countries like the EU that have a special system to protect this uh, geographical indication. So it's it's a big... Battle. So is the is the PDO designation is that um, an EU designation? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. That's uh, and the other two are Italian. No, no. Only? The three of them. All three of them are all EU. All three of them are EU. While the the wine denominations change from country to country, I mean they they more or less follow the same system, but the names are different. Uh, for food, the three levels are the same uh, all across the European Union. Interesting. Yeah. So, that, so you can really be guaranteed. Yep. All right. So here I'm going to. 
put you on the spot because right. it's the, the end of the show and we have to get some wrap up here. So if someone says, well, Fabio, what is Italian cuisine? Hmm. I would say, you know, anything that people from Italy or people of Italian descent eat. I'm very inclusive in that. You know, Italian cuisine as it is in Italy now is different from, for instance, Italian cuisine as it developed here in the U.S. in the past hundred years. Right. But, you know, they are close cousins. They come from the same roots. And so... Well, in it, fact, we saw, we see many products that kind of were springboarded here and then went back to Italy yes. and became popular. So. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I... Tiramisu or, you know, pizzeria. Uh, you know. In my book, I have a whole chapter on uh, Italian food as global food. Mm. Because, you know, you cannot consider just food in Italy, but you also have to consider all the communities that over the the last century or so moved away from Italy and settled down. I don't know, in Australia and Brazil right. and Argentina. And yeah. each developed their own specific cuisine. I mean, of course, it's different from what Italians eat now in Italy. But it's still it's They still were using related. whatever products were local of to course. them and adapting it to what they knew. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So th- that's well, very interesting. And the same, that begs the same question. I mean, should we try to stick a label on... Any cuisine. I, I'm originally from the Midwest, and that's always a, a problem that people say, "Oh, Midwest, they're, 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 they don't they don't have a cuisine." Well, well, they do. Um, maybe no longer, but and you look at the French. I mean, they're you know region to region. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's I think it's it's an interesting question to ask, and it's a question that even UNESCO is trying to answer. Uh, now they have this new category within the immaterial cultural heritage that extends to food. So in 2010, they had the first three categories. There was the Mediterranean diet, the French gastronomic meal, and the uh, Mexican food, the Michoacan complex. And then last year, a Japanese washoku was mm-hmm. uh, given the UNESCO recognition, uh, the coffee culture in Turkey, and now more and more countries are trying to have either aspects or their... A designated uh, Exactly. Yeah. That's, it's not really protected legally like a geographical indication, like a PDO, but at the same time wants to you know, define what that cuisine is. And some people have issues with that. Yeah, I would hate to be labeled American hamburgers and hot dogs. I mean, you know. <laughs> so it's it, within the countries also there are interesting negotiations to figure out what aspects of the cuisine can be uh, proposed to UNESCO for that sort of recognition. I mean, they have to be traced to a long tradition or a product or a. You know, and they have to be part of uh, living traditions that may or may not be in danger of disappearing, but at, that at any rate are an important component of the material culture of, of a country. Of course, UNESCO, it's part of the UN, so it's made by countries, and all these dossiers are pre- pre- presented by countries, right. which is different. They all have their socio-political interests exactly. in mind they have their agendas. economic agendas. So. Right, right, yeah. Well, certainly this book is an eye-opener to anyone who thought they knew what Italian food was or food in Italy was. <laughs> and and I thank you so much. First of all, I thank you for writing the book because it's... It, and this is part, I forgot to mention, this is part of Reaction Publications' um, new Food and Nations series. Yes. And it's, it's really interesting because it is a very... Um, in-depth look in, into what the food 
food scene has been in Italy and, and having such a long history, long and varied history. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining Thank me. Thank you. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.